it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. I want to start today with a reminder. If you aren't already, make sure you're following Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify. I just want to remind y'all ever so often to do that. Because if you enjoy the pod as much as y'all say y'all do, let's keep it thriving. Cool? Cool. As you all know, a lot of times on this podcast, I'll let you in on some of the silly arguments and debates that my husband and I have from whether or not it's safe to eat meat after the expiration date to what's the better album, Mary J. Blige's My Life or Share My World. Now, one of our recent debates is whether or not you can wear pajama bottoms more than one day. He says no, because if you wear pajama pants or you wear shorts to bed, especially without underwear, which I do, was that too much information? Probably. But anyway, to him, wearing pajama pants for more than one day is the same as wearing the same pair of underwear multiple days. I say that's nonsense. If you're just chilling at the crib with your pajama pants or shorts or whatever, you can rock those joints for two, maybe three days in a row. The way my upbringing was set up, you repeated shit. Maybe I'm wrong, but y'all weigh in on that one. Hit me up on Instagram. Give me the verdict. Pajama bottoms, one and done or multiple days. Now, my husband and I, we may disagree on that, but we are in perfect alignment and agreement on this. You should wash your ass every day. Actually, let me be more succinct. You should shower or bathe every day. And therefore... The word of the week, people, is hygiene. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Unfortunately, daily bathing and showering is something that needs to be emphasized these days because there have just been a bunch of celebrities recently who have decided to let it be known that they are team. We ain't showering every day. Recently, actors Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis appeared on Dak Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, also available on Spotify. And they let it be known that not only are they not about that daily bathing life, they also aren't about washing their kids on a daily basis. Take a listen. You should not be getting rid of all the natural oil on your skin with a bar of soap every day. It's insane. Do you guys wash water, your whole body? Water. I don't wash my body with soap every day. Okay, good. I yes. wash my armpits and my crotch daily and nothing yeah. else ever. You don't? Exactly. Wait, and look at guys. his Let's talk about his skin. I got a bar of Lever 2000. There it we go. It just delivers every time. Textbook soap. Nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. That's true. I can't believe I'm in the minority here of washing my whole body in the shower. I can't. Like, it's so weird. Who taught you to not wash? I didn't have hot water growing up as a child, so I didn't shower very much. Anyways, okay. But okay. when I had children, I also didn't wash them every day. Like I wasn't the mm. parent that bathed my newborns ever. There's only one proper response to that. No, 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 no. 
thing is, it's not just Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis on the funky train. Jake Gyllenhaal told Vanity Fair a couple weeks ago that, quote, more and more, I find bathing to be less necessary. Dak Shepard and his wife, Kristen Bell, also were on The View recently, and they did not back down about why they are on Team Musty. We bathe our children every single night. Uh, prior to bed is like the routine. And then somehow they just started going to sleep on their own without the routine. And by George, we had to start saying like, hey, when's the last time you bathed them? Yeah, we it, forget. Sometimes five, six days goes <laughs> along. I mean, they don't smell. So, you know, it's hard to. Well, That's right. they do. <laughs> I'm a big fan of waiting for the yeah. steak. Till no, till no, 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 yeah. My good friend, Bomani Jones, who hosts the podcast, The Right Time, also available on Spotify, coined the hashtag Two Americas, which he uses whenever there appears to be a distinct difference between how black people process and perceive a situation versus how white people do. This entire bathing conversation is definitely some Two America shit. Now, maybe I missed it. And if I did, please feel free to correct me. But I ain't heard nary a black celebrity admit to the world they think showering is for the birds. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say, you never will. Can you imagine Denzel Washington being like, let me tell you what I'm on, not bathing. Black folks would roast that man from here to the afterlife. But all jokes aside, this is actually a far more layered conversation and an example of white privilege. Now stop scratching your head for a minute and think of it this way. Let me be clear. I'm not calling anybody a racist because I know how some folks like to twist shit. But the reason, even somewhat jokingly, that these white celebrities can speak so freely about not bathing and having funky kids is because they have never had to consider or deal with the stereotype of being unclean. That is, however, something that black people have had to deal with. I myself have been called a dirty nigger 5011 times. Now, that's a very specific type of nigger to be. But like everything else in this country, it all comes back to good old history and very specifically the racist history of swimming pools in America. According to a recent poll, over half of black people, 69% of black people, in fact, say they can't swim, and black kids ages 5 to 14 are three times more likely to drown than white kids of the same age. Now, what does this have to do with funky white people? Well, for a long time, black people were excluded from public swimming pools because of Jim Crow and segregation. Generations of black people never learned how to swim because, well, how could they? It was illegal for them to go to pools, and even once desegregation occurred, white folks really, really didn't want us anywhere near those swimming pools. In fact, they were so adamant about it that they had no problem resorting to violence to get the point across that we were not welcome. For example, in 1919, St. Louis opened one of the largest pools in the world, the Fairground Pool. In 1949, the city decided to desegregate the pool. That same year, 30 black kids came to the pool to swim and thousands of white rioters showed up to racially taunt them and beat them. Two people were stabbed and at least 10 were injured. After that, the city of St. Louis decided, you know what, segregation, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea after all, and it went back to a whites-only pool. Now, Jeff Wiltsey, a history professor at the University of Montana, wrote a book called Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America that gives a detailed history of the racist history behind swimming pools in this country. He wrote that one of the reasons white people lost their shit about integrated swimming pools is because, and he wrote this, they thought blacks to be dirty and prone to carrying communities 
communicable diseases. This was a commonly held perception by white folks for generations. Now, I was raised by a germaphobe, and I can't tell you how many times my mother instructed me on how to properly clean my ass, especially my lady parts. Not just from her, but other black folks. I heard this phrase, and all black people know it, cleanliness is next to godliness. Most of us were raised to shower or bathe every day. I don't care if you lived in the projects, a working class neighborhood, or a rich one. But other than just practicing basic hygiene, part of the reason many of us grew up in households that overemphasized cleanliness is because we carried the weight of knowing that people out there really thought black folks weren't clean. Even if we didn't have the means, black people have had to navigate our existence around white anxiety, white fears, stereotypes, and perceptions. You ever look at some old photographs of your grandparents, their parents, maybe some older aunties and uncles, especially from the 50s and 60s? You ever notice how they were always dressed to the nines? You couldn't tell if they were going to church to get some milk, what? They were always put together. And it was not only a way of trying to claim dignity in a world that was hell-bent on denying their humanity. They also believed that if white folks saw them put together, then maybe they wouldn't be so quick to try to shoot them for using the wrong water fountain. It's why so many older black folks lost their shit when they saw us walking around with sagging pants. Every black person knows that we are always on the hook for all black people all the time, which is why you will never hear Angela Bassett or Michael B. Jordan or any black celebrity come forward talking about they don't bathe. They already know that people have been programmed to think the worst of black people. And even if they were out there not bathing and letting their natural oils cleanse them, they damn sure aren't going to broadcast it. These are the things that Ashton Kutcher and the Funky Bunch don't have to worry about, which is indeed a privilege. Hygiene. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now on to today's show. I am so, so excited about today's guest because this woman is one of the most brilliant actors of our time. She's done Broadway, starred in some of the culture's most beloved movies. And as you'll learn in a moment, she is now going to be focused on being behind the camera. Her first major role was playing Blade's mama. She then wowed us as Monica Wright in Love and Basketball and then continued to astonish starring as Robin and the Best Man. Then on the disappearing acts, out of time, brown sugar, like Drake, hit after hit after hit. I am so pleased to welcome the lovely, the talented, the brilliant Sanaa Lathan. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So now I ask this to every guest who appears on this podcast and because of your spirit and based off just a couple few times that I've met you, um, you seem like you fit this category. Uh, when would you say you became unbothered? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I think I'm still in process. I'm going to be 50 this year. I can't believe it. I don't feel it. I feel, I still feel like a little girl sometimes. Um, is that I have a lot of ways that I know how to get to unbothered. But, um, you know, in the world that we're living in, being a Black woman in Hollywood, it's just never ending. It's like you don't end ever. If you think about it, it's a constant state of proving yourself. Your worth is kind of reflected back to you on a constant basis. So, yeah, I'm bothered a lot. <laughs> I get bothered a lot. And you know what? That's okay. Because I believe that 
actually when we don't feel our feelings and we don't go through, you know, true like acknowledgement of how we're feeling that that can later become major issues physically with health, mental health. So I'm bothered a lot. And yet I have lots of ways in which I get unbothered. There was a long answer, but (laughs) no, no, it was a perfect answer because being unbothered is not about not caring. It's about being comfortable in your own skin. And you've always struck me to be that way. I don't know if you were um, acting. Sometimes we we put on the aloof. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we, I didn't want to use the word acting since you are a professional <laughs> actor. But, you know, sometimes, as they say, you fake it till you make it. And so you've always come across that way. Um, you mentioned your milestone birthday that's coming up this year. Did it feel or does it feel like you thought it would feel? I didn't really think about it. I didn't really think about what it would feel like. I do remember, I was blessed with parents who they just, they're artists. And so I kind of grew up around them. Um, My mother was very eccentric, still is in her thinking and outside of the box and kind of a hippie. And, you know, I used to, when I was a little girl, I used to beg her to put on clothes. She'd be like, oh, you know, if I had girlfriends over, I'd be like, mommy, please just put on some clothes. And she'd be like, what? What? They they all had the same stuff, you know? But so I grew up um, with parents who didn't put a lot of emphasis on all of that, the age thing. And she's a great kind of model for me. She's in her 70s now. And I never hear her really complain about age or getting older or feeling less than. And so I was very kind of fortunate to have that as a model. Um, But I must admit when I did turn 40, and this also has to do with being a public person and in the business, I never had an issue with it. But then I happened to have a movie coming out at that time and every article became about me turning 40. And it was almost like, Then I started to have an issue like, you know, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you done this? You're 40. Do you want this? You know, and so it became an issue from the outside. And I definitely had a little bit of a hard time those months after becoming 40. I don't think it's going to be the same way with 50. You know, I feel like, you know, I've come to the point of, you know, if you're not going to be 50, then you're going to be dead. Right. We're all going to keep getting older, hopefully. Hopefully we're going to keep getting older. So it's a blessing. Yeah. Getting older is is the goal. Um, but listen, uh, I don't know if you 25, 35, 45 looking at you because you have not aged a Aww. day. It's like you, Halle Berry, Sade. I don't know what age y'all are. Well, he's right back at you. Look at you. I've got hair and makeup done because I have a full day of press today. I'm jealous of your beautiful glowing skin, <laughs> you know. And you have freckles. I love your freckles. I do. I do. And I did just get back from Cabo. So I think that helps. Going off that tan, you're bragging a little bit. A little bit. A little bit of a slight stunt. <laughs> um, so another question I ask every guest that's on uh, my podcast is, uh, tell me about the first time you felt famous. You know, it's interesting because I really, because I grew up in the business, I grew up around famous people my whole life. I really, you know, um, I'm kind of an introvert, which a lot of actors, people don't believe it, but a lot of actors are, um, you know, I'm, I have to fight with myself to not be a hermit. You know, my therapist is like, you need to go out at night sometimes, you know, the, the whole fame thing. I, I think I remember 
around the time of Love and Basketball, Brown Sugar. And then I think I did, a, I think when I did Raisin in the Sun on Broadway in New York City, and I'm a person who likes to do things by myself and walk everywhere by myself. And I got an apartment that was 10 blocks away from the theater. I quickly realized that even 10 blocks wasn't going to be safe for me because, you know, it was just like everybody was my family. Everybody was my friend. But at that point, I didn't see it that way. It just felt like, hey, Sana. And then you, 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 you're like, do I know that person? You realize it's them recognizing you, you know, men coming up, walking with you. Um, it became, it was like a, a, a rude awakening all of a sudden. I remember just, you know, being at restaurants, people coming up in the middle of your meal. And so there was a, there was a, like a year or two where it took me a minute to kind of integrate the idea of being famous with, with this career that I feel so blessed and that I love so much. I, I feel like I'm really doing my life purpose with acting. That's what I love. That's why I got into it. I really did not get into it to be famous. I don't feel filled up by that. And some people do, and that's fine. And then I, I had a, a woman who was kind of a spiritual mentor to me, and she really helped me. She was like, look, you know, those people coming up to you on the street, um, that's the one time in their life that they may see somebody that, you know, they look up to or that, you know, they, they feel as a celebrity. And that one moment is that one moment for them in their life. Whereas for you, it's happening all the time. So just smile and be kind and be nice. Because at first I felt like, oh, no, no, no. And now it's just kind of like, I just feel like it's part of my job. That sounds very similar to something George Clooney said. He said the same thing that he, he began to be more comfortable with it because he realized for that other person, this is a story they're going to tell everybody. Yeah. And it's really like if my intention with my stories, the stories that I tell is to ultimately uplift people because it's entertainment, even if it's a you know, a horror movie, you know, it's to, if it's, then part of my job is also that extra thing of like, you know, when somebody comes up to you and asks for an autograph, even though you don't, to, to me, my signature doesn't mean any more than yours, but I do it, you know, and I look at it as part of my job. And now I don't, it, it's, it doesn't bother me at all. I made the comparison to Sade um, and you physically a moment ago, but in a personality way, you guys remind me of each other. Not that I know Shade <laughs> personally. I wish I did. I love Shade. Okay. I wish I did. I love her. But she is one of the most mysterious women on the planet. Like, you don't know. I mean, you know some things about her, but you don't know a lot. Yeah, it's true, right? Yeah, you don't really know. She just pops up every 15 years with an album that's fire. And you just... <laughs> Right, looking amazing, amazing. like, what? Okay, (laughs) so that part about her is really outstanding. I think it relates to you in this way in that you're somebody who seems like you want to maintain a little bit of mystery when it comes to the public. I don't know if that was your intent, but I wanted to ask you, was this how you wanted to approach your career? Is giving us a part of yourself, but also reserving some for you that we don't see? Yeah, And I think the benefit of kind of growing up around the business helped with that in that, I guess, because I grew up around artists, it's really about the art. It's not about me. I feel like I'm in service. And so, you know, I came up at a time, you know, doing theater and going to drama school. And we we were always told that the more mysterious you are, the easier the audience will be able to kind of suspend their disbelief when it comes to 
a role that you're playing. So that's the, the kind of school of thought I come from. It's the opposite now with social media and people putting their lives out. And that's fine. We're just in a different time. It just has never felt, even every time I post, it just doesn't feel natural. It's some, I'm, I have to make myself do it. And because it's, you know, I just have to have a presence there, I'm told. <laughs> so um, that's just, it's just a different kind of school of thought. You loosely mentioned loving basketball a moment ago. Um, everybody's fave, including my own. And I saw an interview that you did where you talked about how you were kind of miserable at the beginning of that <laughs> experience, <laughs> right? Um, which for reasons uh, I would love for you to explain, but it seemed like one of the reasons was that you didn't feel like uh, your good friend, Gina Prince, by the way, that you were her first choice for this role. Mm-hmm. It made me curious. Did she ever tell you who she had in mind? Yeah, well, they wanted a basketball player. They really wanted a basketball player who could who they could teach to act as opposed to an actress who they could teach basketball because she was a ball player. She didn't want her, you know, she, she was like, you know, if you don't look good, you know, uh, doing a layup, how are you going to believe this story? And I was very fortunate. I feel like there's a level of kind of destiny that happened with that because years before she got her deal, she had a table read just to hear the script for an audience. And the actress got sick who was playing Monica. And I was a, you know, I was an up and coming actress, kind of just working here and there. And Gina had heard about me and she asked me to fill in for her. And so Gina didn't even have a, a deal. And so I, you know, I had a basketball in my lap. I wore like a big, you know, I'd come from the theater. I just like went all in. And she loved my performance. And then years later, she didn't really see a bunch of, she didn't see a lot of actors. She wanted, she basically saw every basketball player. And, but because she couldn't um, forget my performance in that reading, I got a chance to audition. And so because it was her first film and, you know, you want to get it right. It's your first film. She spent years on the script. She had all these people in her ear saying, you have to get a basketball player. It's possible. You can do it. And then, you know, it, it kind of was a little torturous for me because it was one of those experiences where they just kind of helped, just kept you like hanging on the side and they would just keep bringing me in. And so for the basketball players, they had to do the scenes and then do a basketball audition. Same with me. I had to do the scenes and then we'd walk across the street and I'd dribble the ball looking crazy because I had never picked up a ball. Like I had my brother come out and, you know, go to the local court. And I was just like, you can't learn basketball in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You know, these girls had been born, came out the womb with the basketball. And then finally, she just kept every time I thought that it was time to, you know, get to that next level or get the job, she would throw in another basketball player. And that became very emotionally, really hard. And so and it went on for months and months. And everybody in my life said, you got to drop out. She doesn't want you. You're not going to get the job. And I had this one woman, this black woman. She was the same spiritual mentor. And she said, what else do you have to do? She said, are you learning a new skill? Because I was, you know, I I finally got, I finally said to them, I said, if you're going to get these basketball player acting coach, if you want me to continue, then you should get me a basketball coach. So they got a woman named Colleen, I'm forgetting her last name, and she was an assistant coach for the Sparks. And so she would take me out 
every day and we would just, you know, I was like not a working actress at this time, like, like that. So we would go to the local court and we would do real basketball drills. And I was still horrible because it's, you can't, you, you just can't learn. <laughs> it's like you can't learn piano in a couple of months. You know what I mean? But everybody said to drop out. And then um, this woman, Debbie, said to me, she's like, you're, you're working out. You're learning a new skill. You love acting. So just do it for the fun. Stop worrying about getting the job. And as soon as I really got into that place, it was a huge lesson for me because as soon as I let go and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to have fun and I'm going to learn basketball. And if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. That's when I got the job. It was a great lesson, like in practice. How many times you picked up a basketball since you did that movie? None. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it was amazing. Uh, I don't think anybody watching would have guessed that you had just basically had to pick this skill up uh, in, a, in a few months. Um, after that, were you offered other sports roles? No, there wasn't. You know, that was back in the time when it was like amazing for a black woman to be in the lead of a movie. I remember getting a publicist and for Love and Basketball. And she was like, well, what are your next movies? What movies do you have lined up? And I said, I don't. And she said, I've never represented any actor who has starred in a studio movie that hasn't had at least two, pe two pictures lined up. And so, you know, thank God for this time. But that definitely felt like the, you know, the olden days because it was a different time. You know, there were times when, you know, I didn't work for a year. Well, it's amazing because, you know, you're also friends with Regina Hall and I believe Gabrielle Union, who we, who we both know. And I don't remember who it was. It was a black actress, but I just can't remember who it was who was explaining to me how she would go in for roles and it'd be everybody there from like somebody like you to Alfie Woodard. Yep. <laughs> right. And plays your mom. Like all across the spectrum. And she like, and you guys are all competing for like the same, you know, mm -hmm. part. But, you know, many of these women became your friends. So I'm wondering, considering how competitive it was and hard at a time for a black woman to get roles, how did you balance those friendships with other women when at times you're competing for the same things? Well, in order to do this business, you have to develop some kind of philosophy about all the rejection. I mean, to this day, you get, I get rejected on a daily basis with something, you know, that's just the nature of Hollywood. And then being an actor, um, it's 10 times worse. And I learned really early on. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, start acting and they drop out because mentally it's just too hard. Um, you ha I had to separate myself from my auditions in that, um, you know, if I didn't get a role and, you know, you, you're, you're getting rejected for hundreds of things in the beginning, you're going out for everything from commercials to voiceovers to everything. You have to look at it as fun. It was the same kind of philosophy that Debbie had talked to me about. It was like, you have to look at it as this is what I love to do. I get it. I get a chance to do this today. And then you let God, I had to let God take care of what I get. Cause if you, if for me, when I put it in the hands of these people, that's when you just feel like, ah, so then there's a sort of kind of feeling of, you know, what is meant for me is for me. And what is not 
isn't for me. And I think that's, you know, part of why I was able to always be friends with um, my peers, Gabrielle, Nia Long, Regina Hall, um, you know, because of that, it wasn't about me, the best woman win, because we knew that we were all kind of in the arena. It was more about what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And if I didn't get it, yeah, you're upset for a couple of days, but you're not going to, you know, and those friendships are so valuable because the unique torture of being an actress in this business, especially a black female in this business is so unique that you need other women who are going through that to call when you're on the floor. And each and every one of us has, has been on the floor at some time or another and had to call the other person and be like, you know, look, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I really cherish those friendships because of that. You know, they were necessary for my survival, at least. Was there any ever any sense of frustration for you? Because if we took your name off and we just held up your resume and the length of your career, the fact that you um, are a stage actor, has you've done Broadway, you've done all these movies that have done exceptionally well, a variety of roles. You're now directing, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then, you know, it's hard for me not to think about not just this with you, but Regina and Gab and all of you all who were just so talented. If y'all was white, y'all career will look totally different. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, um, you know, how sometimes you deal with that frustration when you see people mm -hmm. of a different skin color who are not nearly as accomplished and you see the opportunities they get and you're like, mm, yeah, I'd love to get that Scarlett Johansson knock. Would love to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know, right? So how do you deal with that part of it? You know, I'm such a, Gabrielle calls me hippie baby. <laughs> Literally in the phone, it's hippie baby. Um, and I am all about that. I, I, I have to, cause you know, look, I still get to play dress up for a living. So yeah, you can always find something to be mad about. And it is very, uh, I, especially in our, in our time, it's getting, I, it is definitely getting better. Gross inequalities, you know, just, you know, but, and at the same time, how can I be mad when I still am privileged enough to go to work and play dress up for a living and, you know, tell these stories. And, you know, so of course there's days where you feel, you know, you get angry or you may feel sorry for yourself, but you know, it's come, it's like, come on, come on. I am, I am so blessed. It's the, it's the, it's the kind of the idea of I'm too blessed to be stressed. And I'm very, very, um, just so encouraged by all the movement that's been happening just in the last couple of years and seeing, you know, the biggest thing is seeing more of us behind the camera, more of us at studios. Those are the, those are the, the changes that are going to make the real change in this business because nobody cares about if you're, you know, if you're a white man, how much are you going to care about my story? Even if I was green, you want to see yourself reflected. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? We have to get behind the scenes and we have to, you know, be the ones who are telling our stories and then we'll see more of ourselves. So I'm really happy about this time. Yeah, I, I can't um, sometimes figure out, is it that Hollywood is actually changing or that more people like yourself have decided that whether they change or not, I'm going to change them. And I'm going to change them by getting... Um, in a position of decision-making, which leads perfectly to On The Come Up, where you'll be making your feature directorial uh, debut. Um, it's an adaptation 
uh, from a New York Times bestselling book. What is it about this project that made you want to be involved? Well, it was another kind of interesting uh, kind of, I feel, destiny type of moment for me, if there is such a thing. But um, during the pandemic, I directed a short that I starred in uh, about a OCD panic disorder <laughs> Zoom therapist, very quirky little short, but it turned out pretty well. And I've been kind of flirting with directing in the last couple of years. And, you know, just by being in the business, being on sets, there's so much that, you know, it makes it's for actor turned director is kind of a natural thing, especially after being in the business for so long. It's like, you know, for several years, there were a lot of directors I worked with where I was helping them out, you know, new directors. So on the come up came to me, um, there was another woman attached. And then at the last minute, her, there was a schedule change and they were looking for, they had seen my short and I had the opportunity to pitch and the story speaks to me so profoundly in that it's a, it's a 16 year old girl who is a gifted freestyle rapper and she finds her voice. It's a coming of age story through finding your authentic voice and finding your authenticity and her art saves her in a min many different ways. And that was kind of my story kind of coming up. I grew up in the business, but you know, I was a latchkey kid, you know, my parents were never around. A lot of times I was left with, you know, family members who were addicted to drugs. It's kind of like that. A lot of us had to kind of raise ourselves by ourselves. And at 14 in New York City, I got involved in a after school theater group, black theater group downtown. And we started doing plays. And that's that kind of really gave me direction and it gave me um, hope and it kind of saved me in, in a lot of ways. And so it's rapping. It was rapping for her. It was acting for me. And so that's why I'm so excited to tell the story, because I just she's me. It sounds like directing was just kind of a evolution. So when did you start thinking about that you wanted to be behind the camera and direct? You know, it's so funny because I, as a little girl, I never said I wanted to be an actress. I always said I wanted to be a director like my dad when I grow up. And my dad is truly um, probably one of the first African-American directors in television. He came up in the 60s and rediscovering your African roots and the Black Power movement. And there were no directors who were qualified. And he had come from the theater and he just started working and he's done, you know, everything from Sanford and Son to Hill Street Blues to, I mean, he's a staple in the business. Now he produces all of Dave Chappelle's specials and directs all his specials. And so I always wanted to be like him. And when acting, when I started acting, I never was going to do it professionally. And then um, a minority recruiter I don't even think they have this anymore, came to Berkeley. I was in a Black theater workshop at Berkeley. And she came to Berkeley and she said, people of color statistically don't consider graduate school in the arts. And she's like, you, you guys should consider this. And she was coming from Yale School of Drama. And I said, wow, that would be cool. Maybe if I could get in someplace like that, maybe I would consider really pursuing this as a career. And I got in. And so it's almost like that took me on the road of acting. I had always intended on being a director. And 
uh, last couple of years, there were a couple of instances where I was very frustrated with the directors that I was working with, feeling like, you know, very inexperienced. And then I got asked to be a mentor at the Sundance Directors Lab several years ago. And I realized, oh, I'm teaching directing. <laughs> So it's like, okay, what's uh, the message here, Sana? And so then I started, um, I had a, a mentor who's a director of photography and we just started kind of working together just casually so I could, you know, really kind of get that side of it. And so, and here I am. The story sounds really amazing. So I can't wait to to see it. And I love coming to age stories for, you know, maybe it's the the John Hughes fan and me growing up with Breakfast Club. And, yeah. Yeah. And all those ones. It's some kind of wonderful. I love them too. Yeah. Those are terrific. They are. And they, they're coming of age for the young, youngins, but there's always something there for us too, right? It just like kind of brings back that you know, kind of erases away the cynicism and brings back that hope that we all need. <laughs> you couldn't have told me I wasn't Molly Ringwald. <laughs> you really couldn't. Have. I was like, she is acting out my life right on screen. This is amazing. <laughs> so I'm going to forever stay in those kind of movies. So I was really excited to see that you would be putting your stamp on a story that sounds, you know, really wonderful and something that will resonate with people. Speaking of wonderful stories you're a part of, uh, although this is this one is a little bit different. We're going to take a quick break because when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about Hit and Run. Wait, before we take a break, I just want to shout out Angie Thomas, who wrote On the Come Up, New York Times bestselling novel. I just have to. She's amazing. She wrote The Hate You Give, which was also a New York Times best-selling novel, which got made into a beautiful film. Oh, yes. I was like, I knew I knew that name. Yeah. She's one of the producers and we have the same producers as Hate You Give. So I'm, you know, in good company. And I just wanted you to say that because the book is great. Well, even better. All right. Uh, even better. But um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more with Sanaa Latham. I don't know if you all could tell, but my voice sounds a little raspier than usual. And that's because not to stunt, but to stunt a little bit. I've been on vacation for the better part of the last two weeks. Uh, you heard Sanai Lathan talking about how it was important for her to develop sisterhood with Regina Hall, Gabrielle Union and others, even though many times they were competing for the same roles. Well, I got a story to tell that speaks to that sisterhood regarding a five day vacation I took to Cabo a couple weeks ago. During the pandemic, we've all had to do what we could to get through this mentally as we adjusted to a new normal. One of my saving graces was a group chat that I was in with eight other women who you might be somewhat familiar with, either through this podcast or because you've seen them out there publicly. Erin Haynes, editor at large from the 19th News, an independent media outlet that covers the intersection of gender politics and policy. Tiffany Cross, host of the Saturday morning show, The Cross Connection on MSNBC, and author of a fantastic book called Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. Joy Ann Reed, host of The Readout, which airs nightly on MSNBC. Angela Rye, political commentator, general badass, host of the Dynamite podcast, On One with Angela Rye. Sonny Hostin, co-host of The View, lawyer extraordinaire. 
Brittany Packnett Cunningham, organizer, activist, host of the podcast, Undistracted, and an MSNBC contributor. Alicia Garza, activist, organizer, author, co-creator of Black Lives Matter. And Latasha Brown, organizer, activist, strategist, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. The group chat with them has been everything, informative, educational, ratchet, soul-shaking. We even nicknamed our group chat the Machetes, which is a story for another day. But just know it involves Sonny Hostin and a machete. Angela Rye, however, introduced the idea of a girl's trip. And for months, we kicked around dates. And I have to be honest, I had little faith this girl's trip would actually take place because we're talking about coordinating the schedules of nine busy-ass women, some of whom are out here getting arrested to secure black voting rights and saving this country from being the worst version of itself. Now, I'm happy to say I was wrong. It turns out the last weekend in July was doable for everybody. And so we headed to Cabo. Now, I had some trepidation about this trip. Now, just because you're in a group chat with some good people, that doesn't mean you can vacation together. And even though I've known Aaron Haynes for over 20 years and spent personal time with so many of the women in this group, that doesn't mean we could all coexist together on a vacation type of vibe. But I'm happy to report that our time together in Cabo was the in-person version of the group chat. We had ourselves a time. And although we had a beach barbecue that was spectacular, spent a day on a private yacht, notice I didn't say boat, and stayed in two spectacular houses that overlooked the beach in Pedregal that came with a private chef, bartenders, and housekeepers, had Telfar bags filled with fantastic merchandise from Black-owned businesses, that wasn't what made the trip. What made the trip was the stories we shared, the new stories and memories we created, the laughter, the tears, just being emotionally raw with each other. A deeper bond was definitely formed. We're going to remember this trip for a lifetime. This trip was also special to me for some other reasons. It's hard in any field for women to find real camaraderie and friendship, especially when in some instances you might have to compete in the same space. A lot of our peers talk a good game about being an advocate for inclusion and creating opportunities for black women. And then when it comes down to it, they want to be the only one in that magical room we're all trying to get into. A lot of our peers talk a good game about uplifting other women. And then we consistently see them do everything possible to undermine and subjugate black women as bad or worse than men do. These women are nothing like that. I'm so inspired by them. I feel smarter because I know them and they just make me feel encouraged and best of all, safe. So I want to salute them, especially Angela Rye, who was the straw that stirred this vacation drink. This trip doesn't happen without her persistence and excellent organizational skills. Thank you, ladies, for making an impact on my life, not only during this trip and the last year, but for the amazing work that you do. I know our friendships will last a lifetime. And now back to Sanaa Lathan. You've done so many different kinds of roles. Uh, how do you know a role is, is right for you? It's more, it's intuitive. It's gut-based. I don't have like a list of like what I want to do. Sometimes it has to do with the director. Sometimes it has to do with, you know, like hit and run. It was in New York City in the fall. I mean, that was a huge part of it for me you know that was like, a huge win for you in New York City and the fall <laughs> getting paid you know like this was pre-pandemic so back in the good old days yeah so for me it's it's always kind of a visceral thing it's like you know people always say how do you choose your scripts and a lot of times it's like how do I it's like for me it's like it's you're going through hundreds of scripts and then you it's like the one that you can say yes to 
is like gold. And so for me, um, it's usually about can I sit and read it in one sitting without getting up and, you know, going in the kitchen and like getting on a phone call and watching something, not, you know what I mean? Does it grab my attention? Does it give me an emotional response? Is it something I've done before? Is, you know, is it something I'd want to see? So all of those things. Yeah. Cause I, I read somewhere that when you read the hit and run script, that what appealed to you was the fact that it was a, a real like page turner, like you wanted to see what happened next. So is that, was that what other than New York, is that also what connected it to you? Yeah, it just came to me and they said, uh, they gave me four scripts to read. I had a, a meeting with the producers on Monday and I was like, oh God, I got to read four scripts. And I was, you know, I'd planned to do two on Friday, two on, on, you know, Saturday or Sunday. And when I sat down to read them, I read all four in one sitting and then was mad that I had to wait till Monday to find out. So I was like, okay, this is going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? For it to be, and it's the producers of the killing and, and handmaid's tale. So, you know, that kind of quality shows that I love, you know, shows that kind of inspire me in terms of the, the quality and uh, the writing and the acting. And so um, I was happy to, you know, kind of play with people that were of that caliber well, uh, speaking of good things that people are looking forward to, you know, um, the entire Internet went into a tizzy when word got out that the best man yes. uh, that you all have a project with Peacock, a limited series. Am I correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the best man limited series? Well, the gang will be all the gang will be back. And we're all just so excited because we all feel like family now. I mean, it has been. I think when we did Best Man Holiday, it was 15 years. And we were joking then. We're like, yeah, and then we'll do the third one. It'll be like Best Man, you know, old folks home, you know? <laughs> um, so it's a treat to be able to come back together. Um, we shot Best Man Holiday. It was it was too much fun. I think at the end of production, we were all like, is it going to be good? Because we had so much fun and I know it's going to be just as much fun. They're writing the scripts now. And um, so, you know, I can't reveal too much, but definitely looking forward. And I think people will be in for a treat. What kind of, um, you know, emotion do you have knowing how that movie in particular became, especially for the culture, like the gold standard? Um, I'm sure when you guys were filming it, you had probably no idea that it would resonate as much as it has but how does it make you feel knowing that even this many years later both those movies not only hold up well but we're still so emotionally connected to them it feels good you know ultimately i think when you're a you know lifetime actor like a lot of us and that's another thing it's kind of amazing that all of these people what nine people are still in the business working nine black people like that's a miracle in and of itself um it really is so it's just, it's nice. I mean, I, it, it's not, you just want, you want your work to touch people. That's what my, my, the overall goal is that your work touches people. And so if it's still touching different generations, now people are coming up to me like, yeah, my grandmother loves you. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my mother gets out, you know, it's just so funny. And all of a sudden you're just aged. You're just like, oh, wow. <laughs> Was Robin the part you originally were supposed to play? Did you go after any of the other ones? I It was funny because they wanted me to come in for candy. What? <laughs> for Regina Hall's part. Yeah. And I, it was actually a good 
kind of little like stepping into your worth lesson for me because I was I didn't really just I just was like I really responded to Robin more and I remember asking them could I audition for Robin and they said yes and that and that was not a thing because there's so many rules when you're first getting into the business and you're like you have to do it this way and that was not a thing that I, I knew was possible so um that was great and then I got the part and love her she has so much of me the little hippie that I have in her. <laughs> so you were ready to do the strip tease and everything, huh? <laughs> I know. Well, I would have had to. I don't know if I would have gotten that. I don't know if I would have gotten that part. Regina was so perfect for it. <laughs> you know, we were talking before the break about how there is some sort of renaissance happening in Hollywood. I think part of that renaissance is seeing people who uh, become just more vocal and you're someone who I noticed that you've become more vocal about political issues even openly supporting certain political candidates what made you decide that you were going to be more open about your political and social stances you know I'm naturally not very political I'm I call myself more spiritual and yet I you know through just a, a lot of my peers, Black women who are in the business, who I look up to from Alfie Woodard, Kerry Washington, Rashida Jones, um, you know, just women, you know, I really have um, come to understand how important that, you know, we need to work from all angles. Um, and if we don't have the policies, how can we make real change? So if my social media presence can help elevate a black mayor mayoral candidate then so be it and so yeah i'm down i'm down to uplift anybody you know anybody black especially black women you know if it's not us who's it going to be were you ever concerned about um what the reaction to that might be about getting any backlash or anything like that i'm sure you did receive some you know from people who may have responded to a post but were you ever worried that this might be something that could impact my career or could impact opportunities. No. <laughs> You're like, mm -mm, no, not really. No, no not really. <laughs> I mean, just be honest. <laughs> well, uh, you said Gab calls you a hippie baby. And uh, yeah. one, yes, a hippie baby. And so you, you do seem to have a very calming kind of aura about you, but. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you do. I meditated today. I was going to say, ask you about that. So, from what I understand, you meditate every day, correct? I meditate every day. I mean, I try. I do. There are periods where I, you know, slip up. Several years ago, I had a very traumatic year where my best friend of 20 years since I was 16 just died suddenly from like, a, you know, it was way, obviously it was way before COVID, but um, it was like, you know, the, the yearly cold that everybody gets. And then within like four days, she was gone. And then I had... It's kind of a stalker situation. And it, 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 there was a lot of stuff. Then I had, you know, I was working and I wasn't dealing with it at all. I was just, you know, like we do, just being strong and just moving on. And then like clockwork, maybe, I don't know, two to three months later, I started having panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And I didn't know what the fuck it was. I actually had a, a girlfriend a couple of years before who was like, yeah, I get panic attacks. I was like, girl, just breathe. That's not real. You know, I was like, what's a panic attack? And then all of a sudden I started getting them and I would be fine, like happy. And then all of a sudden I would feel like I was going to die. 
like just heart racing, feeling like you're going to have, like you're going to, you feel like you're going to die. In the beginning, I went to the doctor and he was like, "These, you're fine. Your brain is handling the stress the way that it knows how to, because you're not dealing with it. And he wanted to put me on medication and I'm not against medication, but I didn't want that to be my first resort. And um, a friend of mine who was very into meditation, he was like, you know, this this particular type of meditation um, helps Vietnam vets with PTSD, and it's they have all these scientific studies that it it lowers your blood pressure without blood pressure medication. Anyway, I started, I learned, and I started doing it. And they were so bad that like I would be on set and I would be in the middle of a conversation and would have to just like lay down on the floor. It was really scary. And as soon as I started meditating, they went away. Like day one, it was crazy. And because of that, I became obsessed. And I was like, what is this? Because I always thought it was just some, you know, I don't know. I didn't know that it really had such drastic, um, just such a drastic impact on the brain. And as I did my research, it keeps the gray matter in your brain from thinning out. Like when your gray matter goes, that's when all of the brain diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia and all of that comes from. It helps with, you know, obviously your immune system. It helps with everything. And so I definitely make it a daily practice, just like working out. I'm a huge advocate, huge advocate. Yeah. I've tried to meditate before and I don't know if you went through this. It sounds like you took to it pretty immediately. I can't get my mind to quiet Stop. And that's why you need to do it. Okay. So how did you overcome that part? Basically, there are so many different kinds of meditation. There are mantra-based meditations. You could just focus on your breath. You could do a walking meditation where you literally leave your phone at home and you are just present in your body. You can meditate by washing the dishes. We are so connected, meaning like it's called mindfulness meditation where you there's nothing else. There's no TV on, there's no phone, there's no computer. And you are just, you know, focusing on what you're doing, but the sitting and breathing or focusing on a mantra, even if your mind is going, if you just sit there and do it every day, there will be times eventually that you go there and you go into this zone where everything goes away. And it's just like a muscle. And after you know, just don't give up. Okay. Just keep doing it. That's a word. I received that. We all need it in, in this age of our phones and social media, right? Yeah, definitely. We don't know what that's going to do to us in the long term. Probably nothing good. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> nothing good is the answer. I know that exactly. right now. It's like not going to do anything good. What was life like as a bald woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was terrified with that. And yet I was ready. I was really ready because, you know, Black women, just our hair takes up so much energy and time. Um, and then working as a, you know, an actor in the business, it's like, you're always worried about, okay, what is my wig, my weed? You got to protect your hair. You don't want it to break off, all that kind of stuff. So it was terrifying. And yet I was ready. And I had all these wigs ready because I was like, you know, I probably wouldn't want to wear it. And I got such an amazing response from, you know, exes, from, you know, everybody it, it, that I just, I actually wound up shaving it. I kept it really low for a show that I did and never wore a wig. And then I went into braids 
And now I'm ready to shave it all off again. Really? You think you might do it? My mother doesn't want me to do it. I don't know. She's like, your hair. I just want to... She loves my hair. But I don't know. You never know. I might wake up one day and just do it. I don't know. All right. Uh, before we get to this rapid fire, fun questions that I have for you. What is the most difficult but rewarding scene you think you've ever done? <laughs> this is kind of funny. It just popped into my head. Um, Alien versus Predator. And I'm in a corner and the, the fucking alien, like I'm trying to curse for you because yeah, we're on, thank you. <laughs> because we can curse. <laughs> and they have a bucket of slop, slime, and they have to keep having, and then it's mechanical. So the thing, and it's over, and I'm like this, and then the slime keeps dropping, it gets in my mouth, and it keeps, you know, it's, yeah. What's that slime made of? I don't know. Maybe KY jelly or something. I don't know. <laughs> I pray to God. <laughs> For your sake, exactly. Yes, to have slime poured on you as you're grappling with a mechanical alien is probably a little much. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, so there's a game I play with every guest that appears on this podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this. I give you two options. You pick one. Okay. Key phrase. You pick one. Singing or dancing? Dancing. Dancing. Are you a good dancer? Sometimes. <laughs> you have your moments. I'm not a person <laughs> who likes, who who knows all the dances, but I just, I'm just, over the pandemic, I'm kind of trying to teach myself how to twerk. What? It's so funny. That was inspired by my mother. She was like, I want you to learn how to twerk. And then I want you to teach me. <laughs> She's in her 70s. But she was a dancer back in the day. And I was like, okay. And it has taken me a time and I'm not, I'm better, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. Yeah. I'm the way these hips are stiffly set up. I can't do it. I know. It's really good exercise. <laughs> I can see. Yeah. I was like, when I look at Meg Thee Stallion, I'm like, I, I wish I had half of your kneecap. I can't even do any of uh, that. No, right, right. The knees. It's all about that knee. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I'm too old. I get down there. I ain't gonna be able to get back up. <laughs> Greens or macaroni and cheese? Hmm. Greens, 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 greens. You try to be try healthy, to be healthy. healthy. <laughs> a little bit. I try not to eat dairy, but you know, I do have it on, you know, special occasions. Uh, Beyonce or Rihanna? <sighs> Beyonce. Quincy McCall or Harper Stewart? <laughs> oh my God. That, you're just so funny. I, I'm both. I'm not choosing. It was funny though, because um, there was a whole thread that started on Twitter where people were breaking down like why Harper Stewart really wasn't shit. And it was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Like, y'all know he really wasn't shit, right? He wrote a book about his friends. Quincy, you know, he was a little, he just had some maturing to do. So it was a little different. Uh, And finally, more villainous, more evil. Would that be Anne Harrison or Andrea, who you played in The Family That Prays? Ooh, I forgot about Anne Harrison. Anne Harrison was something else. She was. But you know what? Andrea was just, oof. Yeah, to the core. (laughs) To to this day on Twitter, they'll be like, damn, Samoff. You know, like, I'm like, that's not me. I was acting. And, you know, that was the one character that when she got backhanded, slapped across the uh, the counter, the, the audience cheered. <laughs> They're like, normally I'm not down for domestic violence, but today. Violence, exactly. Apparently it's all right. Is that crazy? Do you enjoy playing a, a villain? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Some of those, that's some of the fun. Yeah. I want to play more. 
Mm, okay. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. You, um, you've had this was so fun. It was a lot of fun. You've had such an incredible um, career, and I've just loved. I feel like we grew up together, basically. So I understand why random people just walk up on you on the street because we all feel like you're related to us or you're our friend or you're our sister. But um, you have just been so amazing with all the things that you've done. And I know this directorial turn um, is going to be no less excellent and stellar than all the things that you've done in your career. So please take care. And I just look forward to seeing more and more work from you. Thank you. This was so great. Thank you. And I'm, I, I love watching you too. I love your voice and all the, the, you're raising the consciousness of everybody out there. And I know it's not easy. I know it's, I know it ain't easy. It's not always easy, <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I understand this assignment. Yes. <laughs> so now it's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. I'm not joking when I say this, but I'm actually taping this episode's Fuck It, I'm Bothered from a closet in Anguilla. I'm on vacation here, surprised my husband with this trip for his birthday. And the biggest reason I chose Anguilla is because not only was it beautiful, overloaded with amazing culture, it also was a place that only was accepting vaccinated travelers. I've been here for three days and fuck it, I'm bothered at America all over again because of how we handle the pandemic starting in 2020 and definitely how we're handling these new variants now. Obviously, Anguilla is far smaller than the United States, but their attitude, policy, and mentality toward COVID is so much different than ours in the States. It makes me embarrassed to be an American. Here was the process to get into this country. We had to fill out an extensive entry application for St. Martin, where we had to connect for our flight to Anguilla. And also in Anguilla, we had to fill out an entry application. We had to test negative for COVID 72 hours before our flight, and we had to be fully vaccinated for at least a month. Once we were approved for entry by both governments, we had to show those approval papers when we boarded in the States, when we landed in St. Martin and in Anguilla. When we landed in Anguilla, we had to take another COVID test and we were given a neon wristband, which could not be taken off until the results of our test came back. We were told we could walk freely around our hotel, but we could not leave the property until we tested negative for COVID. Now, even though every guest at this resort is vaccinated, the staff here still wears masks and based off conversation, most, if not all of them, have been vaccinated. Anguilla has had 113 COVID cases this year. Zero deaths, no hospitalizations. The last active COVID case they had was in mid-July, and it came from, surprise, an American. Meanwhile, since I've been here, I'm looking at Twitter to check in on what's happening in the States, and the very first video that pops into my feed is a bunch of angry-ass white people at a school board meeting in Franklin, Tennessee, yelling and threatening medical professionals because they recommended to the board that kids and teachers wear masks. The area these people live in, by the way, is among the richest in Tennessee. And by the way, COVID cases are up 45% in the last week. I also saw that Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson tested positive again for COVID. And he went on to say he doesn't know if he's going to get the vaccine. 
Again, he has had COVID twice now. In Anguilla, they put public health first, and the issue never became as political as it did in America. And talking to one of our cab drivers, it's clear they saw stamping out COVID as a community effort. It was none of this my body, my choice shit. It was a complete lack of selfishness. I've got five days left in Anguilla, and I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it, not only because of the consistent 88-degree temperature and the sandy beaches, but also because for this short period of time, I get a break from America stupidity. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fire. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh, my word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel, show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. 